0: Welcome to Pedagog, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, Alison Carr talks about environmental rhetoric, writing pedagogy and failure, and revision. Alison Carr is Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Director of Writing Across the Curriculum at Coe College, where she teaches courses in rhetoric, theory, composition, and creative nonfiction writing. Her research engages the emotional and affective dimensions of failure. And her writing on the subject has appeared most recently in the introduction to her collection with Laura Michiki Failure Pedagogies Learning and Unlearning What It Means to Fail. She has also published creative nonfiction in the Rumpus, Craft, Literary, and Other Venues. Her essay Losing Composure was nominated for a Pushcart Prize in 2021 and included in the Notable Index of Best American Essays 2021. Currently, she is working on a collection about revision with collaborators Christina Lavecchia, Laura Michiki, Hannah Rule, and Jane Stone. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. You've taught numerous writing and rhetoric classes from creative nonfiction writing to environmental rhetoric, and I'm really interested in what class you're enjoying teaching the most right now, or maybe the class that has most captivated your attention or interest most recently, and why.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Shane. This is very exciting for me. I've been catching up on a lot of pedagogue episodes over the summer on, on my daily little walks, you know. Um, so this question, it, it's almost like you're asking me to pick my favorite child or my favorite dog or something. But <laughs> um, So it's really tough to choose, but, but I have spent a lot of time recently prepping my environmental rhetoric course. I want to say by giving you some context here that this is not part of my graduate training. I didn't take any courses in environmental rhetoric or for environmental communication or science communication or anything in graduate school. Um, So I really had to pick it up. I inherited it. It's a course that's knitted into many programs in the college so it wasn't an option to just not have it. (laughs) Um, So I'm really, I've been really grateful to um, colleagues both locally and um, outside of my local context who have Giving me a lot of help figuring out how to, how to structure the course. And I want to call out three. Um, one is Lauren Cagle from UK, previous pedagogue guest, um, who sent me some materials maybe five years ago that really helped me turn a corner. And then more recently, Min Song from Boston University. I'll, I'll say something more about him in a little bit. And then just this summer, I've been in touch a little bit with Tim Jensen at Oregon State. And all of these folks have given me big, big lifts on this course. So so this is a rhetoric course. It does draw on my background in rhetoric. And then we're just sort of doing that through um, climate and environmental discourse. Of all my courses, it draws probably the widest variety of students, their majors, their interests, their plans post-graduation. Um, and of course, because of the subject, it feels really, really urgent, which brings a lot of energy to the room that isn't probably as palpable in my other classes. And so it's one reason it's a favorite course. So when I first started teaching it, we were focusing primarily on the ways political actors (laughs) have contorted or perhaps straight up denied scientific conclusions in order to sort of do nothing on climate. Um, And I'll never forget these evals where students um, wrote that they felt this course was, was vital and that it should be required in the college, but that it was so depressing (laughs) that sometimes they thought they couldn't come to class. (laughs) And I thought, well, that's, that's in some ways a great problem to have, but also a terrible problem to have. So, so I've been working on making it less depressing, which is hard to do because the climate emergency is very despairing, but this year I'm using um, several chapters from this collection that just came out last year. It's called Genre in the Climate Debate, and it's an edited collection. It has chapters from Amy Devitt, Charles Bazerman, um, Rife and Berworshi, uh, and a few others. It's open access. You can just Google it right now. It's so good. And I just like found it in a Twitter thread. <laughs> so I love it. And that's going to be the anchoring text, and it's going to help us look at the ways the climate emergency has been textured by all these different genres and all these different stakeholders. And the really cool thing is so much of the book is focused on these like public genres. So they're things that students are familiar with, but they haven't ever really thought about in a critical or rhetorical frame. So there's a lot of like sort of aha moment, or I hope there will be, I guess I still need to teach the book, but so that's going to be the, the the anchor of the course, but then what's really exciting for me is these two projects that students will work on. And one of them is an ongoing project, lasts for basically eight weeks. um, And it's called an Everyday Life Project. And this is a a project invented or at least brought into my consciousness by Min Song, who I mentioned at Boston University. He teaches this climate fiction course. Um, And then he's written about this. He has a book that just came out this spring called Climate Lyricism. From, I think it's from Duke. It's gorgeous. You should read it. <laughs> um, so he describes it in there. So I would send you to the source for the kind of firsthand um, description of it. But the, the overview of it here is that students essentially commit to some sort of climate action uh, or, or an action related to, to environmentalism for about eight weeks. And they have to journal about it and reflect about it. And we bring it into class discussion. And the purpose of this project maybe it's twofold. One is to set habits that are beneficial for the the environment. The other purpose is actually just to give us as a group and as individuals, like a sort of touchstone of hope every day of our work in this course. Um, So Dr. Song's example, when he describes this is um, that he committed to riding his bike to school every day, right? So it's meant to be something achievable <laughs> that you can directly say i'm you know i'm not increasing my carbon footprint when i do this the other project after students have spent the whole term learning about rhetoric and genre they are asked to create some kind of text that will communicate some kind of message about the environment or climate that they feel is urgent and important to them and they need to bring all that rhetorical learning to bear. And so some examples students have done in the past, um, one student wrote a children's book about endangered species. Um, One student did a Twitter thread about overpopulation as a straw man argument. Um, I've had students write futuristic fiction. I've had a student did a walking tour of climate change in our neighborhood, Um, like climate change happens here kind of a thing. one student did a satire tourism package for like near future climate destruction. Uh, and, then, and then this one student who merged the, the, the Everyday Life Project and the final project, which was really cool, the, the, pro, the Everyday Life Project, she, she um, cataloged, collected and cataloged litter around our campus um, for you know six or eight weeks. And then she did a little analysis on her data and put together a memo this was the pro- the the message project she put together a memo for college officials about where different kinds of waste receptacles could improve the litter situation right so so both of those course those um projects are really desi- designed to help students maybe keep their head above water even when confronting this global crisis um and maybe just to zoom out here you know, kind of give a little love to my nonfiction courses. I think, you know, all of my teaching is, is whether nonfiction or rhetoric is really about helping students understand the power that their words have in the world. That's just, that's like the, my one sentence mission.
0: Allison, when I was getting my master's at Fresno State, you published In Support of Failure in Composition Forum, and that was back in 2013. And I remember Sal telling me about this piece and, and really your piece shaped my thesis. So I'll always be a fan of your work and I'm super thankful for that piece in Composition Forum. Failure and the role of failure in writing pedagogy is, is definitely one theme in your research. Can you talk more about your definition and reorientation of failure and its relation to writing pedagogy and how this understanding of failure influences your own classroom pedagogies, practices, and policies?
1: I'm like blushing at, <laughs> at, your, at your admiration of the work. I really, really appreciate that. And and there's a little bit of irony here for me because, because I'm, I have really sort of mixed feelings about failure um, now, 10 years on. Um, but I'll, I'll speak to the question and then maybe, maybe we'll follow up on, on that aspect of it. But yeah, in, in the 2013 piece in comp forum, that, that was my first sort of big time solo piece, um, which then expanded into a dissertation. Um, I sketched out this pedagogy of failure that was emphasizing the affective and relational quality of failure. And I was trying to imagine a writing classroom that would actually set students up to fail, where failure is just the point (laughs) of being together and working together. Um, And and it's not something that should be avoided. And I described some activities at the end of that article that might cultivate that sort of a pedagogy um, and I was operating under this theory that these are the kinds of things that would, that would encourage deeper curiosity and as a result sort of embolden students to take bigger risks in their work. But, you know, a decade post, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways, I think I really am still keyed into what what maybe i'll now call like an ethos of failure an affective ethos of failure you know in very in a very plain way i suppose i'm very open about sharing my failures with my students with my colleagues with my boss Um, i feel really committed to normalizing this idea of just naming failures And I really mean failure. I don't just mean mistakes. I I really mean like that thing that happens where you feel like garbage, you know? And part of this is also just about like feeling our feelings (laughs) and naming them and like understanding like feelings are information. And that pit in your stomach is information for you about what's going on in front of you. When it comes to more practical applications, um, I, you Know at the start of the pandemic, in part because of the pressure of, of trauma-informed teaching or trauma, maybe I won't say trauma-informed, that's a that's a specific term that I don't necessarily mean, but I do mean teaching in the midst of widespread trauma and need, need for flexibility. I took a pretty strong turn toward contract grading. I had been kind of kind of working toward it for a little while, integrating contracts into some parts of my courses and pandemic really just pushed me into the pool. And I'll never look back. I'm very grateful that that I was pushed in that way. I'm now working on getting students more connected to that process, having them reflect more on where they're struggling in the learning. Um, And with the contract itself, that's been part of the learning curve for me is understanding, you know, I guess I have some reservation about contract language, because it feels very final. (laughs) And I'm learning to kind of Think about that as a softer term, um, and try to try to constantly be asking, you know, what is serving the students in front of me, and it doesn't necessarily matter what served my students last term, right? Who's what's going to serve this group? So, so that part's sort of still in process, but I'm trying to integrate more collaboration, I suppose, with students on the, the assessment part of the course. So that's one piece that maybe an ethosis of failure or of safety in risk taking is perhaps coming into play. Another piece of it is with regard to assignments. You know, sometimes I have assignments where the purpose of the assignment is for the student to to do a very specific kind of writing, right? And that's one kind of thing, But, but actually, you know, maybe, more than more than half of my courses of my coursework in a course is, is is stuff that can be open right like these sort of basic little homework things you know respond to the reading like in the past maybe I would say write a summary and now I'm actually just not directing how to respond and because I'm in, I'm working on contract grading you know I need students doing homework because I need them being connected to the course I want them to clear a homework hurdle but I don't ask them to complete 100% of the homework assignments in order to clear that hurdle. Maybe it's 80%. That's what I've done in the past. So, you know, hypothetically, imagine that the hurdle you need to clear is 20, okay? And I've got a dozen different types of assignments ranging from one to five points. You could clear your homework hurdle by doing four five-point assignments, which are much more involved. (laughs) Or you could do 10 lower stakes kinds of assignments or simpler types of assignments or some mix of that, right? Because um, all you need to do is hit 20 by the end of the term. So that's sort of how it works. And um, there's also room, there's room for students to bring me assignments. Like maybe they've had a, something they've enjoyed doing in another class. They can bring that in and say, could we do this? And I think it should be worth this amount of points or whatever. So, and so there's three things going on here that I think are kind of connecting us back to this, I, this ethos of failure. One is that it it gives students much more agency in how they are engaging and connecting to the course, which is important to me. And I think it increases their engagement overall. Two is that the assignments, um, you know, that the higher end of the assignments, at least in theory, are are incentivizing this, you know, failure, let's say, quote unquote failure um, in a controlled environment. Um, and, of course, the other part of that is if students don't feel up for that kind of a uh, risk on any given week or any stretch of time, they just want to do something that feels really familiar, they can just do that. And that's fine, too. So I'm trying to to be maybe more sensitive than my early work would have suggested about the like level of buy in <laughs> that students need to have. And then and then third, I guess I said there were three things. And the third thing that's going on is that is that there's a lot of different work going on and that then lets us have conversations about like what, you know, students are working in eight or 10 modalities on a given, you know, assignment or given text. What are those things drawing out? What different ideas are they, are they drawing out of the, of the material? So, so the through line that, that I think is something that holds up is that failure is a, is a common and, and convenient vehicle <laughs> for disrupt, disrupting routines, provoking reconsiderations to the work that we do and the choices that we make. And, and these are some ways I'm trying to sort of sideline like the punitive risk factor, which, which is not important to me. It's not, it's not, doesn't really align with my values. I'm not trying to be an antagonist. <laughs> um, but, but then centering the sort of creative and intellectual possibilities that I think failure brings into view. So I'm trying to thread that needle and I'm, you know, I'm sure there are ways that I keep failing at it, but that's that's where I am at the moment.
0: So your co-edited collection with Laura Michiki, Failure Pedagogies, was published in 2020. And now I'm um, I'm wondering how your conception of failure changed from that 2013 article to this most recent collection. That's seven years. And maybe seven years of contemplating what you would have said differently in 2013. So, so, I'm interested is there something you can pinpoint in in this collection that you feel like expands what you were doing in twenty thirteen or maybe even takes a different direction that addresses some of the gaps in that twenty thirteen article
1: yeah, I've just pulled I've just pulled like one of my copies here to kind of browse through it a little bit some of the pieces that like really kind of made me sit back <laughs> in my turn and go like, "Oh my gosh, wow like." Like I wasn't thinking of this, and I'm so glad that we did, that we opted for an edited collection, and that I didn't try to like take on a book project all by myself, because I, you know, my my perspective on failure. I think the the big, um, the big whiff for me in thinking about my early work is just how you know I'm a, I'm a white cis woman who has a PhD, right? Like I have a pretty a pretty specific position in the world that in that that has a lot of privilege and I didn't do a very good job of accounting for that in my earlier work and I wish I would have and part of part of the idea for this collection was me starting to like really wrestle with that and think you know I was trying to think as soon as I got as soon as I started my my job here which is what is in 2014 I, um, you know, felt like um, oh, I'm supposed to do something with my dissertation, right? I'm supposed to do something. And I really, I, I, I stalled out for a while. I mean, I'll just be very honest. Like I had terrible writer's block. And then I, I wrote something very weird and I submitted it to three C's and it got rejected. And I was, and I was, I mean, I got reader reports, but, but I was really, I was so, wounded by just the email. And it it was a form email. There was nothing wrong with the email, but I actually didn't even open my reader reports for literally a year. And by then I, I had, I had this sense that like, there's something I didn't do that I want to do, but I don't know how to do it really. And I don't want to mess it up. And I, and so I just sort of was spinning my wheels for a long time. And eventually I read the reader reports and they were totally fine. (laughs) And good, and maybe I'll still do something. I don't. I don't know, because then I, at that point, I thought I, Laura and I had been talking about this book, so so I just kind of moved past that experience um, in order to focus on this book. And I'm and I'm really happy that it went that way because I I really liked not not trying to write as an authority. I really liked being part of a chorus, I suppose, and 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 centering other perspectives. Um, as I'm just looking through the table of contents, like I'm looking, you know, the very first chapter is like an appreciation of cliches and an examination of what, of, of why cliche is, is okay and actually good in student writing. And we shouldn't um, be so committed to, to some idea about good writing that we overlook the role that a, that the a cognitive role that a cliche can play for for someone learning a new discourse, learning to level up their writing. Um, there's a piece in here on Title IX, on the, on the failures of Title IX, uh, processes at a college. One piece that really stands out to me memorably is one of the very final chapters, which, which is from Asia Martinez and it's a, it's a Counter-Story. And it's my, it was my first introduction to Counter-Story as a method. And it, it's, it's really been on my mind a lot since then. And I'm I really, I'm a big fan of her work. The last thing I guess maybe that I want to say about ongoing process of of reflecting on the work that I've done and thinking about what might be next for me, I just had a sabbatical. It was my first sabbatical, and it's you know, which provokes a lot of reflection on like, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing in this career? What's next for me? You know, I'm st- I, I remain very interested in failure, even as I recognize and maybe because I recognize my own um, shortcomings with regard to the work that I've done and not not quite knowing how to correct that or whether it can be corrected. Or maybe I'm just destined to sort of always be doing it most of the way, but not all of the way, right? Like I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not going to solve it. And that's, that's also fine. And maybe none of us ever solve anything. But is that I find failure both a very sticky term and a very slippery term. And when I say sticky, I mean that like people have very visceral associations with it. And when I say slippery, I mean that like its meaning changes from person to person. And so I don't know, I'm less committed to it as a concept that maybe is portable, you know, like I know what it means for me, but I'm not necessarily committed to this idea that I can say, this is a pedagogy of failure and this is what it would mean to do it. Right. So, so let me connect some dots here between talking about my teaching and then talking about this research and like my own like existential turmoil <laughs> with regard to it. Is that you know everything I described about my classroom, my desire to be transparent with students, my move to contract grading, my effort to be as flexible as I can be in terms of the way students are connecting to my courses. I think failure led me to all of that, but I feel that my angle of vision has really zoomed out and I'm seeing these things not necessarily as as evidence of a pedagogy of failure, but actually as cornerstones in a pedagogy that's care-oriented, committed to transparency, like I said, really committed to equity. All of that stuff I feel is really about trying to increase access and equity in in my classrooms. I don't know what to call that in like a pithy way, but I would say those are the the phrases that that drive what I'm trying to do, and I think that I actually can't hold on to an idea of what failure is going to mean beyond my like very very hyper local context. It's it all has to be really contingent and and contextual. That that's like a feature, not a bug.
0: Allison, this is my last question. I was hoping you could talk more about your recent research. So you're working on a edited collection on revision among advanced writers. It's called Revising Moves, showing and narrating revision in action. Maybe you could give us a glimpse at at what you're doing in this collection and what we as readers and teachers can expect from it and how it might impact or affect our teaching.
1: Yeah, I I have had a, a lot of fun on this book so far. I we're really in the thick of it at the moment, which makes it difficult to to summarize. You know, I've been looking at sentences (laughs) for the last two weeks. We're working on working on the introduction. And so I'm really like in the weeds on it. But um, so I'll try to be brief, but let me tell you who's working on it. It's a five editor team, which is the biggest collab I've ever been a part of. So it's Laura Michiki, Hannah Rule, Christina Lavecchia and Jane Stone. Um, Hannah and Christina and I were all grad students together at the University of Cincinnati. Um, Since our UC days, we've been in a writing group. Um, that used to meet you know, face-to-face and now we just meet online. Um, and then Laura was our mentor um, all, all through, she directed all of our dissertations um, and we've all collaborated together on a lot of different things, um, really, really get on quite well. And, and then Jane is new to the group. Jane is a PhD student studying with Laura right now. And ha- happily and marvelously, this book came from Jane. It came from a paper that Jane was working on with Laura. So Laura got in touch with us 18 months ago and said, I think we have a project. Do you guys want to be part of this? And, and of course, of course, the answer was yes. So, you know, of course, I, I'll say yes to Laura, no matter what it is. Do you need help burying a body, Laura? I'll help you. <laughs> so, so we spent uh, the spring and summer working on a CFP Um And what we thought we were asking for when we when we sent that out was we thought we were we were proposing a book that would really pull back the curtain on what revision looks like for advanced writers. There's a lot out there on student writers, less so um, on professional writers. Right. And so that CFP, you know, essentially said, hey, (laughs) hey, show us your mess. Right. Show us how your drafts are changing over time. Show us screenshots of texts that you share with your co-authors. Um, give us excerpts from reader reports and talk about how you are integrating those kinds of things into your revision. Um, and the authors gave us all that stuff. And we got, we, we got these marvelous proposals and a marvelous set of chapters. Um, but what we found in our first pass was, was that the energy or like the life of revision actually didn't stick to the like artifacts the way we thought they would. That um, the, the, the vibration of revision was really in the narratives themselves. Um, They were sharing, you know, artifacts and data with us, but what, where, where we were really keyed in was, was in moments where they're trying to give us a, a kind of an intimate look at their process or a description of their process or how they're thinking about their project changed or, in many cases, actually how they're thinking about their, themselves and their roles changed. Um, so, you know, midway through the kind of first first um, big stage of, of putting the book together, we saw that pattern and it felt very serendipitous and it felt like we should just follow that. And so we had been working with authors over the summer essentially encouraging them to really like lean into that and really build up the story aspect of the of the book. So so that's where we are right now. And, and one really kind of happy and very challenging and vexing problem that that introduced was, you know, when we wrote our CFP, we had a very cut and dry organization scheme. But this move towards story really upended that um, because of the kinds of things that were blooming out of these chapters is, is not totally what we anticipated. And so, so now we've been working on organizing it in a way. This is the big work of the summer was organizing reordering chapters in a way that we hope will create a a a kind of a an arc that feels more like a narrative across all these differently authored chapters rather than the kind of maybe, you know, more academic edited collection sort of thing that we might be more familiar with. So, so let me give you an overview of what that looks like. Um, in the beginning of the book, we have, I think, three chapters where authors have a really strong sense of what they will and will not do. It's very, they're very straightforward and sort of declarative chapters. And then we move into a set of chapters that use revision to explore author identity. So then we move into a set of chapters that use revision to explore author identity um, in the context of professional documents and texts that are often obscured from view. So we have authors in that section talking about their job market materials, talking about writing letters of recommendation, um, talking about working on annual review, looking for a sense of identity and annual review. Um, And then we we move into some stories that focus pretty heavily on how revision is propelled by feedback in various forms, reader reports, um, things like that. Um, From there, we move into a series of chapters that show scholars really struggling. um, And the main thing they're struggling with is, is protecting their vision. So, you know, we've just left chapters that are about working with feedback. And now we're working in a group of texts where the feedback is is creating um, some tension in terms of what needs to stay and go and how does an author protect what's important to them while also maybe letting go of some things. And then finally, we close the book with a handful of chapters um, that that resist resolution. One author is giving us a look at an ongoing revision that is frequently interrupted. And I don't mean that term in a, in a negative way necessarily. I think you'll find in this chapter, it's often welcome, (laughs) but frequently interrupted by the, by the challenges of, of having a family, you know, and having to juggle work priorities with family priorities. Another Authors writing about a project that's long in the past that really can't be revised, but still wrestling with the with the unrevisability of it. So I think it's going to be really a really unique book in the landscape of writing studies. Um, in terms of you know what to expect, whether as a reader or a teacher, I think we're imagining this book really as a mentor text, um, and I'm I'm using that term in order to distance it from you know, maybe a cousin, which would be a guidebook of best practices, you know, I think we're, we're floating away from that a little bit. Um, we really hope and anticipate that it will provoke a lot of connections for readers, whether because they recognize something that's really familiar to them or perhaps more importantly, that they, you know, get connected into chapters that represent something new and different. Um, and, and they're getting some new perspective on this activity that, that defines and, and really moves so much of our, of our professional life.
0: Thanks, Allison. And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.